0: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3,
1: 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce looking to shape the discussion ahead of the fall federal election. Why Canada's prosperity needs to be at the forefront. Also, in a troubling precedent, Harvard University has caved to student activists and removed a law professor from the position of dean. Plus, Alberta's new premier has confirmed the carbon tax will cease to exist by month's end. So where do we go from there? Well, of course, we've a federal election coming up later this year. The question about, you know, what's this election going to be about? Elections can take on a bit of a life of their own. Obviously, the party is trying to have an impact on, on shaping what that campaign is about and the things that they want to talk about. But it's an opportunity to, to bring issues to the table. And uh, it's a great opportunity to hear from uh, a variety of different voices. One of the, the organizations that, that wants to ensure that, that they're included in that conversation is the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Today, they've launched their election policy website called Vote Prosperity, which you can find at platformforprosperity.com. They say they want to highlight the needs of Canadian businesses to all parties in the upcoming federal election. And they've uh, outlined some of their own proposed solutions, hoping maybe to to push the conversation in a certain direction. Joining us uh, to talk more about all of this is Phil Taylor, Senior Director of Public Affairs with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Phil, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Thanks for having me, Rob. Really appreciate it.
1: You know, it's interesting. I think when, when you take an approach like this, it, it might come across in a way as that, you know, you're, you're criticizing the existing government or that we haven't got the right kind of policy approach. But, I mean, this isn't meant to be any kind of a, a partisan uh, statement here, is it?
0: No. Um, you know, when we, when we look at some of the underlying fundamentals that are really affecting business, Sometimes there's a lot of things that governments simply can't do, uh, but there are a lot of things that we can and should do, and that's really where we're focused on. Um, having said that, you know, I think when we, when we look at the, the challenges that we face in the next few years and some of the challenges that we faced over the past year, and feel free to, to let's go dive into that. I think when we look at that, what we, what we are looking for is a partner that is a little more forward-looking than the next four years. I think what we need is to get out of that election cycle and, and those sort of election-style promises, you know, a niche tax cut here and, you know, and, a, and a, a regulatory bone tossed here. We need big, major changes. Uh, and that's, I think, why you see a little bit of a different approach from us, which is more of a challenge, because they're challenging times.
1: Challenging in what
0: sense, then? Well, I mean, I think it'd be fair to say that if you looked at the job numbers last week, you'd be, you'd be feeling pretty good about the Canadian economy right now. Sure. But let me tell you about what I hear when I travel across the country, and I'm hearing them from uh, businesses right across the country. This isn't just, you know, an Alberta story. It's not just B.C. It's not Halifax. It is every single business as I go across the country, is that when they start thinking about putting projects together, and let's not forget that we are, we are a, a nation of builders and we can't get anything built. Um, we think about trying to attract some, some dollars, whether they're from a Canadian source or from uh, a foreign investor. Well, we're competing now with uh, the U.S., which is a very, very uh, competitive jurisdiction for capital investment. And so, you know, there are options for investors that um, didn't exist a few years ago. And we don't have the capacity, Canada doesn't, we don't have the fiscal room to offer some tax cuts that we see south of the border. So where do we go? Well, our economy is starting to slow, and most economists would agree by the end of this year, we're going to see a little, bit, a little bit of pain. We don't know the size and the scope, but it's going to continue into 2020, so we're slowing. A big part of that, as you know in Alberta, is we can't get our energy resources to international markets where they can get a fair price. Well, that's a, that's a big challenge. Mm-hmm. At the same time, our new trade deal is languishing in the U.S. And let's not forget that trade deal, for better or worse, it's what we've got. But even, even, even that, we can't seem to get that across the finish line with, uh, with our friends down south. At the same time, steel and aluminum industries remaining hostage to illegal U.S. tariffs is starting to pile up. Um, so when we think about some of the big challenges that we face, a lot of it is related to regulatory burden. Um, that includes our tax system. It's very complex, and it, it, it costs a lot just for a small business to, to, to file it, uh, an income tax. Um, you know, there's a lot of pieces that are coming together that if we don't make changes, we are going to continue to slide away. And we know that we are hurting for foreign investment. We're, we're, we just can't get any projects done in Canada as well, even here at home. So there's, that's what I hear over and over and over wherever I go across the country.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because some of that, I mean, some of that's outside of our control, right? I mean, in terms of the U.S. dropping those steel and aluminum tariffs, the U.S. uh, getting the the new NAFTA deal passed, right? Uh, So part of it is, I I guess, trying to not quite shield ourselves, but but strengthen our position as much, much as possible so that we can deal with those things that are outside of our control.
0: You know, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are there's nothing that we can do with uh, the current U. administration. U.S. administration. They are they are going to do what they want to do. So the question for us is, what can we control? Well, the two big ones. Top of the list for small businesses right across the country is one is they want they want a simpler tax system. They just you know they want they want to do it the way that they do it in Australia. It takes half the time to file. Most of it is digital, uh, and it doesn't burn up at the time of a small business owner. Uh, you know, on average, are doing about 100. 20 hours, I think, it, it takes to do a small business tax return. I mean, that, that, that just can't stand. So we've got to look at ways to fix that. Um, at the same time, um, compared to other countries that we compete against, small businesses pay in, in, in just an in, inordinate amount of tax um, or make the overall tax mix. They draw too much from business. So we said, okay, well, let's level it out. Let's find a new way to do it. And the only way we do that is a comprehensive tax review, which, by the way, internationally is is well recognized to be overdue. I think the OECD and the WTO have reported the same for Canada. All of our banking committees, Senate committee, Chamber committee have agreed. So that's one thing that we can do. It's, It's within our grasp, but it's big and it's bold. And so it'll be interesting to see how parties respond to that.
1: I think it will. Um, you know, we just got an announcement today from Alberta's premier confirming that uh, we are going to move to lower our corporate tax rate, make, mm-hmm. try to make Alberta more competitive jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. You alluded to the, the the fiscal pressures that Ottawa is dealing with, but, but do you think there is some, some room nationally, federally, for some tax reform?
0: Well, I think it comes back to tax mix. Um, I think if we look at other ways of, of filling the coffers, then I think you know we can we can perhaps lower some of the uh the, the rates on business um, but it's a much broader question i don't think there's any easy fix and I'm not sure that we have a whole lot of fiscal room right now to be able to really make big, bold moves. But I think if we look at the whole system as it as it puts together, and at the same time, uh, we can work together with the provinces on that, then I think we can make some really improve- good improvements. And I was heartened to see that uh, the Premier, uh, Kenny, uh, looked to make uh, some quick moves to become more competitive.
1: Mm-hmm. You alluded to trade as well, and that's so important, yeah. um, and hopefully... We'll see the new NAFTA deal implemented on both sides of the border, but obviously we also got the, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the new CPTPP yep. that Canada is a part of, our trade mm-hmm. deal with Europe. We, we've made strides on, on some of these fronts, but where do we still have room for progress when it comes to trade?
0: Well, the interesting thing is that we have a lot of, of, of great trade agreements, um, but... Where we see a, a, a glaring gap or an opportunity, depending on how you look at it, is that if we look at our small businesses and medium businesses as well, how much do they export, it's about 4% nationally. If you look at a comparative number, say, in Europe, that, um, that number is 20% of their small and medium businesses are exporting. And so there's a gap there. If we were to close that gap, that's $225 billion, with the B's and Bob, that go into the national coffers, right? I mean, that is, that is a big, big jump for us. So the question is, how do we get them there? Well, one of the ways uh, that we know for sure, because we've heard it from them directly, is to say, okay, I know that there is uh, some great agreements out there. I want to take advantage of it, but quite frankly, navigating government services isn't really helpful. Number one on their list is I don't want an agreement by agreement breakdown. Tell me where sector by sector it makes sense for me to go related to each of those uh, particular trade agreements. So that's job number one that we've asked for. If they can do that, then I think we're going to see a big jump in the numbers.
1: What about here at home? I mean, that seems to be... It's almost easier to do business with, you know, across international borders and across provincial borders. Do we need to focus on on trade within Canada?
0: Well, you are absolutely right there. Now, we've called for, you know, a big, bold move there. The challenge we have is um, that obviously there's the, 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 you know, we can work at the national level, but this is also a province to province agreements as well. And some of the things that we want to see are just, you know, uh, Canada-wide recognition of um, of accreditations, whether they be medical or professional or anything in that regard. But we need everybody to come to the table and act like adults. And, you know, we've seen uh, now some politicization uh, in falling along partisan lines related to, um, you know, some of the premiers uh, across the country and as well, uh, at, the, at the national level that just can't quite seem to get on the same page. And that's, that's unfortunate, and it's something that we're going to have to tackle. I don't know that there's an easy answer to that, but you're absolutely right. We trade better with countries outside of Canada than we do within.
1: All right. Well, people can read more at platformforprosperity.com, a way to bring some of these issues to the forefront in the coming months ahead of a fall federal election. Uh, Phil Taylor, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you very much, Rob.
1: Take care. Uh, that is Phil Taylor, Senior Director of Public Affairs with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. So you can go to platformforprosperity.com. It may be unfair, I suppose, to uh, compare Gian Gameshi to Harvey Weinstein. But th- there's, there's certainly a Canadian parallel to this next story. Marie Hannon who has now become maybe the most famous criminal defense attorney in this country, in part because of the Gameshi trial, but also, more recently, of course, her work on behalf of Vice Admiral Mark Norman. After the John trial, though, uh, there were some feminists in Canada who felt as though maybe Marie Hennen had betrayed women or betrayed feminism by defending John Gameshi. When Marie Hennon was set to speak at some Canadian universities, there was pressure on those universities to cancel those speeches. Now, never mind that Marie Hennon, as a woman, is a hugely successful criminal defense attorney, and that she's really good at what she does. The mere fact that she was defending an unsavory person somehow, in the minds of many, reflected poorly on her. But I think this represents a fundamental misunderstanding of how our justice system works, how it needs to work that people are entitled to mount a defense. Defense attorneys can get a bad rap for the people they defend, but they play a crucial role in the system. Now, you would think, for example, at a prestigious university like Harvard, and Harvard's law school, they would understand this. We got a story, though, uh, out of Harvard University that that is very concerning. Uh, Professor uh, Ronald Sullivan who committed the, the sin in the minds of many of uh, joining the legal defense team of Harvey Weinstein, is now out as dean. Now he remains a, a professor at the university. But why is Harvard basically, as our next guest writes, surrendering to a mob of student activists? Joining us on the line is Robbie Suave. He's associate editor at Reason.com. Also author of the forthcoming book, Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. Well, be great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program.
2: Thank you for having me. Great to speak with you.
1: Now, it's interesting. In your piece, uh, that's up at Reason.com. you talk about Professor Sullivan's background, hardly the kind of person you would expect to, to be caught up in, in this kind of storm of political correctness. So uh, how did we get to this point?
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Ronald Sullivan, uh, you know, he advised uh, Senator Obama when he was running for president on criminal justice issues. His work on criminal justice reform has helped free uh, more than 6,000 wrongfully incarcerated people. He's taken on clients as murderers, clients who are murderers, uh, uh, suspected terrorists, etc., because, you know, that's what you do when you're a a, a defense attorney. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, it's not, there's this It's not the same thing to endorse their crime. Obviously, we believe in under sort of Western liberal enlightened justice that everyone is entitled to a fair trial and the the best defense uh, they can muster. Um, The students, not all of them, but a a subset of radical students at Harvard have decided that because Sullivan is going to represent Harvey Weinstein, um, the campus is no longer safe, uh, particularly safe for women, uh, concerning matters of sexual harassment and sexual violence. I mean, they've said this explicitly in their protests, and Harvard took their concern seriously. They investigated the matter, and uh, look, look as, as fate would have it. Uh, they've decided not to reappoint a, a, a Sullivan. He, him and his wife have effectively been fired as faculty deans.
1: It's crazy. Um, you, you quote one of the uh, student activists uh, who says that, that because he's representing Weinstein, it's not only upsetting, but deeply trauma inducing and, and going even further that somehow he does not value the safety of students within Winthrop House. I mean, th- this is crazy.
2: I mean, it is really crazy. I mean, you know, not so long ago, you would have had, uh, you know, conservatives maybe doing some hand-wringing over, over you know, defending a terrible person, and, and if liberals, ACLU liberal types, who say, no, 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 due process, etc., you know, people are, everybody deserves this to, to be treated fairly under the system. I mean, what if he was... You know, imagine a scenario where he was he was representing, uh, you know, the the Zarnov or something, the Boston the Boston bomber, and maybe in a death penalty case or something. And the, you know, this is something liberals, ACLU types, again would have said, well, yes, the, you know, the high profile attorneys take on these clients uh, to 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 you know represent a principle of justice. But here, that principle is just out the window because activism related to sort of sexual harassment. Feminism, Me Too stuff on campus is operating under a really different set of rules these days, uh, where where due process and uh, and sort of you know respect for those kinds of norms have rapidly fallen out of favor. Uh, you have to be on board with the kind of the kind of overzealous. Uh, uh, safety and protection and, and that sort of thing, which is the rhetoric these students always use when they discuss people taking positions or doing things they don't like. They always say it's a matter of safety. That's the, that's the commonality in all these kinds of young activist movements we're seeing on campus and elsewhere. Uh, right. It's a matter of safety that you disagree with me.
1: But there's no way here that Harvard has been convinced that these activists are in the right. Obviously, the people making these decisions, they know how it's supposed to work. They know that people are entitled to legal representation. They know that this professor has not done anything wrong. And yet, despite that, they, they've acted as they did. So what, what does it say about Harvard?
2: Um, it's, it's a terrible shame. I mean, you know, I've covered a lot of incidents, you know, similar to this, professors being thrown under the bus, uh, often, kind of, you know, when I, I talk to professors privately, even even very far left professors, they tell me they are
1: afraid
2: of their students, of the of this tiny minority of radical students uh, who are doing things like this. And the administrators at various colleges have no idea what to do about it. Uh, they uh, they're afraid of the negative publicity that comes from crossing these students. They, it's the squeaky wheel uh, gets the gets the oil, that kind of thing. Uh, but Harvard is you know it's. The most prestigious college there is in some respects, uh, would be uniquely positioned to take a stand against this insanity. And instead this, this Dean, Ryan, uh, Rakesh Karana has just completely, uh, uh, folded, uh, in a very, in a really embarrassing way. And I have to think he, he just, he just decided he cares more about, you know, these students. Uh, feeling comfortable and not making any more trouble for him than he does about standing on principle, which is just, just a disaster, frankly.
1: It really is. And, and, you know, for these so-called progressives, this seems like such a pyrrhic victory because ultimately what you've done here is you've taken uh, a man, an African-American who's in a a very prominent position uh, at a university, Harvard University, that might have been unthinkable not all that long ago, somebody who has done tremendous things in the cause of criminal justice reform. Once you make somebody like this the enemy, once you've, you've dislodged them from this position they've worked so hard to achieve, are you really really accomplishing anything that can reasonably be described as progressivism.
2: Oh, it's so self-defeating. I mean, it calls to mind, I have heard from law professors that they have stopped teaching in their classes, they stopped teaching the law as it relates to sexual assault, because students, again, not all students, not most students, just a couple students Will complain that this is that this is inducing their past traumas. The same that this is making them unsafe to discuss these issues in a classroom, uh, and and so it's better to just avoid these uncomfortable subjects altogether. Which is a which would be a just a travesty, right? To stop teaching the next generations of lawyers, of judges, uh, of prosecutors, the nuances of of, of, hand, of how to handle someone who says that they've been the victim of a crime like this, how to, how to treat them on the witness stand, all of those things. That, I mean, we've come a long way in, in, in treating these accusations, um, in actually listening to them and hearing them uh, in, the, in the criminal system, right? Um, and you could actually see a, see a move back. We, we could fall backward because they're not going to teach it anymore because they're so afraid of offending this, this hyper-woke uh, cabal, Uh, that believes everything that's uncomfortable for them is a matter of safety.
1: much more at uh, Reason.com. Robbie, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, take care. Uh, Robbie Suave, associate editor at Reason.com and uh, his book, I believe next month it comes out, in fact, Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. So, yeah, maybe it's it's a lesson for everybody on on both sides uh, of the spectrum. Well, maybe not a surprise, but uh, Alberta's new premier, Jason Kenney, confirming that uh, Alberta's uh, carbon levy uh, just has a couple of weeks before it is uh, officially gone.
0: Bill number one of the uh, new legislature, which will be introduced uh, on Tuesday of next week, will be the Carbon Tax Repeal Act. And it will uh, be passed with an effective elimination by uh, the 30th of May. So by May 30th, there will no longer be an Alberta carbon tax.
1: Now, judging by it, polls and I guess the election results as well, maybe not a lot of tears being shed. The carbon tax was not popular. The question, though, also now becomes, I think, what next? What are the costs involved in the UCP's own uh, emissions plan? And what about the federal Carbon tax. Obviously, that may be going to the Supreme Court of Canada, but it seems quite likely that in the interim, uh, the elimination of Alberta's tax would mean the federal price would kick in here. Joining us to talk about uh, where things go from here and uh, how we reflect on... The Alberta Climate Leadership Plan. Very pleased to welcome the program. Someone who was certainly instrumental in uh, developing that plan. Andrew Leach is associate professor at the University of Alberta, Alberta School of Business. Professor Leach, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, Like I say, not a big surprise. I think it was pretty clear where the uh, new government was going to be going on this front. But, um, you know, hearing that that confirmation today, I mean, what what are your initial impressions?
3: I think pretty well the same as yours. I mean, that was was a key campaign promise. all the way down to the piece of legislation and the title of the legislation, I think. So that's not too surprising. I think what we don't know is is what all the bits and pieces are uh, in terms of the the legislation and what other programs or uh, tied spending or what have you is is going to change as a result, if any at all.
1: Right. Um, what's your sense of where things went wrong with the uh, climate leadership plan or what, why it became so unpopular? Um,
3: that's a great question. I don't know that I'm the, necessarily the, the right, <laughs> right person to ask. But, but I think, you know, to, to me, the biggest, the biggest thing is we don't really know the what if for what would have happened had Alberta taken another, a, a different direction. Right. If, if Premier Notley stands up on the at the podium uh, in November of 2015 and announces a different policy, then you know the next day is the first minister's meeting in Ottawa. What are the consequences of that? What are the consequences rolling through the the Paris Climate Change Conference, et cetera? Uh, so I think that's that's part of what we don't know. And then, and then of course, another big part is that, that the ground has shifted shifted quite a bit. In terms of the U.S. policy landscape, right. so with the with Donald Trump's election in the U.S., that changes, if you will, the the consequences in Alberta of not having um, not having a the same type of credibility on on the climate change file.
1: Well, yeah, it's an interesting point because it kind of got flipped around that maybe uh, you know five years ago. It was something that was maybe less of a concern in ottawa, more of a condition more of a an issue, a concern in washington d c and obviously then, as you say those those roles have kind of been reversed,
3: sure, and you know let's not discount the other provinces either that you know you think of the the types of discussion. That And some of the same things we see today, actually, from Premier Doug Ford, for example, saying, you know, the problem isn't the commuters, it's the big polluters. We're going to crack down on on large facility emissions without noting, of course, that most of those large facilities uh, are in Alberta. And we were seeing a lot of that same type of discussion 2010 onwards that you know, the, the big problem was Alberta and the oil sands and, and, and this sort of thing was part of the national discussion. It was part of the discussion from governments east of here, for sure, and to a lesser degree west of here. And so, you know, that that played a big role as well, In ter- and that ground has obviously shifted quite a bit as well since
1: then. It is. For, from an economist's perspective, um, you know, the the merits of uh, um, a market price on, on carbon uh, that, that consumers pay, as opposed to putting all of this on so-called big emitters. Why is that a preferred approach?
3: Well, I guess there's two pieces of it. First, if you think about the potential emissions reductions in in your economy, the things we could possibly do, think of that as a portfolio. And there's going to be a range of costs over that portfolio. And if you're trying to reach a particular goal, say Canada's national target, what you'd like is a policy that says, I'm going to go and get the lowest cost things in that portfolio that get me to that goal. And if you take you know, part of the elements out of that portfolio because they're from a certain part of society, so we're not going to touch personal transportation, we're not going to touch home heating, we're not going to touch all of those things, then you've left, you've taken some of the cheap roots off the table. Uh, So that's part of the why have a broader-based policy than a narrower-based policy. Then the question of, you know, why a price versus some other thing. I mean, you know, our premier is a a smart person. He knows a lot about a lot of things. I don't think he can look into everybody's house and say, I know how you should reduce emissions. I know what car you should drive. I know where you should live to be closer to work so you can commute with a lower impact. He doesn't have that, nor does he obviously want to as a a small C conservative. Uh, Carbon price does that for you. It says, you know, make up your mind based on the price of, of emissions, and we accept that different people are going to have different decisions that that make sense for them, but we also accept that the government's not going to know what those are. So I would say those are two separate sides of the same coin. Why a carbon price, and why a broad-based carbon price?
1: What do you make of the argument that that by eliminating the carbon tax, that we're essentially going to be putting that money back into the economy?
3: Well, you know, the money was was going into the economy anyway. It's just going to be in a different spot, right? So it's not as though the dollars were collected and then sent to California, for example, or sent to some other jurisdiction or lit on fire or whatever the case may be. Uh, so it wasn't a question of them being taken out of the economy. It was a question of them, uh, the carbon tax being collected on some things and those dollars being used in in other ways the rebate being maybe the most public of those but uh but it's certainly not a question of these dollars just disappearing
1: obviously the previous alberta government took a different approach than the current federal government is taking there there are some who believe that in fact if if we eliminate alberta's carbon tax and the federal carbon tax applies here that that might even be a a preferred scenario what do you make of the two approaches
3: Well, you know, the federal approach was basically built off the Alberta approach, right? Their system of having a uh, carbon price with uh, a rebate for consumers and then a large emitters program that that provided some protections for competitiveness, an opt-in for smaller producers who were competing with large emitters. That was all an Alberta design before it was a, a federal program. Uh, where the federal program is slightly different from Alberta's is in the structure, in particular, of the rebate, where the federal program has said we're going to lump in a lot of – almost all of the tax revenue uh, across the economy and lump sum that back to consumers at the household level across everybody, whereas Alberta said we'll take the dollars that are collected from consumers and or a proxy for those – And we'll lump some of them out, but with a means test. So with uh, about 65% of Alberta households qualifying for some kind of a rebate. And so, you know, certainly there'll be some Albertans who are better off under the federal regime, some Albertans who will not be better off under the federal regime. There's also some differences in what would be covered by carbon tax. Uh, federally for example one of the big ones would be venting um, and flaring at oil field facilities is treated differently some drilling rig emissions would be treated differently there are some other things that are different from so it's not just the consumer side that's different in design from federal to, to provincial so i'd be careful pretend you know in the same way as you don't want to pretend there's Money uh, appearing from nowhere if there's rebate dollars being coming from the federal government into Alberta, those are dollars that are on average being paid into the carbon tax in alberta so for every uh, for every dollar in there's a dollar coming out somewhere
1: but is the federal version closer closer to revenue neutrality, and is revenue neutrality something we ought to strive for
3: um, well you know the the revenue neutrality question so b c kind of brought that to the forefront back in 2008 where they said, okay, explicitly, here's a plan that we're taking on, we're adding a carbon tax, we're cutting income taxes, and we're going to show you that those two numbers are equal. Uh, Since then, even in B.C., it sort of became something of, well, here's how much the carbon tax collects, and then here's a set of other tax credits, expenditures, cuts, et cetera, that the B.C. government undertakes that add up to that same number as the carbon tax. But what they never really did was say what would the size of government or total expenditures or whatever have been in the absence of the carbon tax. They sort of let you believe that, but whether or not it was true was in the eye of the of the beholder. And, you know, we saw that in, in the change in government in B.C., the liberal, D.C. liberal side who liked the revenue neutrality calculation that they used suddenly stopped liking it as soon as the NDP was in government and and, and making the same types of calculations and and probably vice versa. So, you know, I I don't don't know that it's a revenue neutrality question, right? The dollars were still going into the economy. What people would take issue with is, did the NDP government also spend dollars on more program-related things?
1: Are you concerned that it seems at the moment it's it's not about I don't like carbon tax I want a different emissions policy it's just kind of a rejection of of any approach to dealing with emissions.
3: Well, I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's fair either to the to the new government. You know that if you look at what's in their platform, supposing that that policy gets implemented it would be certainly stronger than what was in place when Premier Notley took office. And it would still be among, you know, if if you took that from scratch and implemented it in most jurisdictions in Canada, it's still going to be a fairly significant climate policy. And and one of the reasons it would be that way is, uh, is because a lot of our emissions do come from large industrial emitters. So Alberta putting a price on large industrial emissions matters a lot more here than it would, for example, with Ontario doing a similar thing. I mean, we'll see what the, the devil's in the details, but I don't think it's fair to to say that, that Jason Kenney rejecting action on climate change. Um, you know, I think it's probably fair to say on every dimension of the policy, he's scaled back the stringency of action on climate change in Alberta, so he's going to get fewer results out of it but but I don't think it's fair to take it as far as saying it's a rejection of action.
1: Okay, but I mean, to that, then how do we define the success of, of any climate policy? Is it simply looking at, did it reduce emissions? Did it reduce emissions you know, more so than what they would have otherwise been? Absent the, the policy? Is it about public buy-in? How do we measure success?
3: You know, I, I'd go with the middle one. I think what, what you're trying to do is, in, you know, from a pure economic perspective, you're trying to reflect the fact that, our actions that produce emissions have costs. They just have costs that, that we're not made to pay for. And, you know, if I do something that damages my neighbor, my neighbor can turn around and either sue me for damages or, uh, or what have you to recoup some of those losses. But global climate change doesn't have that attribute. People can't, or despite trying to, are unlikely to be able to sue us for damages resulting from our individual emissions. But a government policy can sort of put that trade-off in place, and so I think the the measure of success is have we adequately internalized that trade-off? Have we made those costs part of people's everyday decisions? You know, for, for me, I've never been somebody that is, is a huge fan of, well, here's my target that some percentage that happens to divide evenly by 10 by some year in the future that also divides evenly by 10. That hasn't been a huge source of attention for me. It was always, does this policy stand up? If everybody in the world implemented this policy, took this approach, would we meet broader global goals? Not, are my emissions at a particular level next Tuesday?
1: All right. Well, we'll see what happens in the weeks ahead. Andrew Leach, appreciate the insight and appreciate making some time for us here. Sounds good. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Uh, Professor Andrew Leach at the Alberta School of Business, University of Alberta. His thoughts uh, on uh, where we go from here. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, Rob, at 770CHQR.com. Talk
0: to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.